I'm going to invite you this morning to, to turn not to Revelation 17, and again, I apologize, but we're going to go to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. I would have been in Revelation 17 this morning, I promise. But with my having to be gone next Sunday, I told you I've got to have at least two Sundays in a row to be able to, to start wading into that magnificent text. And so we're going to pick that up, Lord willing, uh, as soon as I am back that, that next uh, Sunday. But in Acts chapter 18, there is a truth here expressed in that chapter that I think greatly encourages us when we desire to serve the Lord with our lives. And, and thinking about uh, these graduates, some of them are going out to serve the Lord. Some of them are training for further service. And thinking about our congregation, where so many of you are serving in various ministries all throughout the week. In fact, Gateway Baptist Church, I think, like other churches that are located near Christian ministries, such as Christian schools and camps, we have a unique makeup. Because I think we have a higher than normal percentage of members who have weekly ministries outside their church and higher percentage of students who are, who are preparing for God's calling on their lives. And, and many of them are, are preparing to formally enter into ministry. And some of you are soon graduating and moving on from here. And many of you are going to be serving in camps this summer. And whether your occupation is full-time ministry or you are a witness for the Lord in a secular work environment, which we need more and more of that, your goal as a believer is to know the Lord and to serve Him wherever He has placed you. And when you take that goal seriously, when you consciously think about it and pray about that, remaining faithful to the Lord, you can never anticipate exactly where the Lord is going to take you. You really don't know where that journey is headed, not fully. Because as soon as you make plans, it seems that for his servants, the Lord delights in changing those plans. In fact, a life of living for the Lord is a lot like traveling. You know where you want to end up, but sometimes what happens along the way, you could have never anticipated. And we're going to talk about these ideas, if I can get this to advance, uh, there we go, uh, under the heading, for I am with you. And that is what Paul talks about in Acts chapter 18. And we'll get there in a few moments. So if you travel, you know that you cannot always count on uh, where you're going to end up. And you'll just have to advance it because I'm, I'm not getting anything up here. Um, uh, how simple the concept of flying from one city to another, getting on a plane in one city and getting off in another city. But that's not the way it always works out. Your flight can be delayed. It can be rerouted. It can be canceled because things happen. Bad weather can ground a plane or require a pilot to take a different flight path. Or there may be mechanical difficulties. Sometimes planes have to make an emergency landing in a different city. Sometimes airlines overbook a flight. Can you believe that? And they overbook, and, and you have to find a different flight, even though you paid for that ticket. Sometimes the airplane crew runs out of time to fly. You realize that only, there's only a certain number of hours that a crew and a pilot can fly in a given space of time because of the toll it takes on their bodies. And sometimes because of delays and so forth, they simply run out of time 
to fly. And when a flight is canceled or delayed, it creates this ripple effect that impacts your life as a traveler. Ever end up waiting in an airport in a city you never intended to travel to? Uh, ever spent a night in an airport terminal? Oh, it's so much fun trying to get comfortable uh, on those chairs. Uh, but somehow your luggage already got to where you were going, or worse yet, your luggage has flown off to some exotic place that you can't afford to go to, uh, but your luggage is there. Or maybe you had a layover, but your previous flight was so behind that you actually landed after your connecting flight had already taken off. Have you ever missed your flight because security took so long and you're running to the gate with your carry-ons and your shoes still untied and they're calling your name over the loudspeaker? Mr. Gregory Stekas, your flight (laughs) is about to leave. Gregory Stekas, we're about to close the doors. I've had that experience before. Because you never know what's going to happen along the way to your destination. If we could advance the slide one more time, it's the same way when you set out to say, I'm going to serve the Lord with my life. I'm going to do something for him and live my life for him with my talents or my field of giftedness or with my opportunities. You can already anticipate, you can already anticipate that things are not going to go exactly as you expected. You may face conflict and opposition in your place of work or ministry. You may have issues come up in your family. You may have medical emergencies or long-term health problems. You may have financial hardships. And I'm not trying to paint some bleak picture here. Don't go into the ministry. You know, it's going to be terrible. You know, don't serve the Lord. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, I hope the next generation doesn't look at the previous one and say, wow, I don't want to go through that. I'm, I'm going to sort of stay away from ministry. I feel like that has happened in some senses. And and if that's true, it's probably because we haven't given the impression equally when we think about the pain of ministry, of the joy of ministry and what God can do in spite of all these things and the blessings that he gives along the way and the pleasant surprises. But I think that secretly we believe that if we tell the Lord, I surrender all, I, I will serve you with my whole heart wherever you open the door. Here I am, Lord, send me. That... From that point forward, God is going to say, wow, I'm so glad he's going to serve me. I'm going to make his path so easy. I'm not going to give him much heartache at all. I'm not going to put any obstacles in her path because this is one of my committed servants. But no, in fact, it's almost like the opposite is true. First, because ministry is not a peacetime endeavor. We are at war against the devil and his forces. And we are called to expose the darkness and bring people into the light. You know what Paul says to those who expose the darkness? If anyone will live godly in Christ Jesus, he will suffer persecution. It's a promise. It's not one of those prayer promises you hear claimed when we have sort of claiming prayer promises uh, time. But, but it is a promise nonetheless. It will happen. Second, because God wants us to have to cling to him and cry out to him because it is only through him that anything of lasting value takes place in our lives. God teaches his servants to depend on him, sometimes by leaving them with no other option but to trust God. What are we going to do now? I can't think of any other thing to do. We're going to have to trust God. Has it come to that? (laughs) That we have to trust the Lord. However, however, the best thing, the most important thing, the thing that matters is that the Lord is with us, comforting us, strengthening us, growing us, encouraging us, 
every step of the way. The Apostle Paul himself is reminded of the Lord's presence in this very chapter, Acts 18. He's reminded of it dramatically and unmistakably. I'm going to show you what I mean. Let's start reading in verse 1. Paul is on his second missionary journey. We can advance the slide. Uh, At the end of chapter 17, he has just shared the gospel with the philosophers on the uh, Areopagus, the, the hill of Ares. And Luke writes, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Oh, here's where we learn Paul makes tents. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath where the Jews would meet and the the scriptures would be opened, the the scroll would be opened, and and he would talk to them about what they're reading in there. He reasoned with them every Sabbath about Christ and the gospel, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, which is how they say it over there, by the way, Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Their Messiah was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Tedius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Now, I want to stop there for a few minutes. If we are going to appreciate what's going on, we have to fill in the backstory just a little bit because it it seems like things are going pretty well for Paul here. If, If you're going to look at the ministry, things are happening. Things are going well. But you have to remember Paul's own testimony about challenging things that happen on ministry journeys. In fact, Paul wrote about, wrote about these challenging things that the, the most comprehensive list we have that everybody thinks about is actually written to the Corinthian people that he's ministering to in this chapter. He writes to them later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If we could have that on the slide, Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. I sometimes imagine somebody trying to share the gospel with Paul before he became a Christian and saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) This is not exactly what Paul thought maybe he was signing up for. We do not know exactly when all these things happened to Paul. We know that he had about 13 years of ministry up above his hometown of Tarsus, way to the north of Antioch, before Barnabas went and got him and brought him to Antioch, and Antioch became his sending church. So a lot of these things could have happened already to Paul when we meet him in, in, in the book of Acts. 
but we know when some of these things happened. In fact, when Paul started on his second missionary journey, Acts chapter 16, he's zigzagging across what we now know as Turkey. It's Asia Minor. He's zigzagging across back and forth, trying to figure out where the Lord wants him to minister. And he can't figure out where the Lord wants him to preach the gospel. But he finally gets to, uh, to um, Tarsus and he has a vision of a man on the European continent saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul and his three co-workers, Silas and Timothy, and now Luke, he joins them. They go across the Aegean and they find their way to Philippi. And the Lord gives Paul great success in preaching Jesus Christ at Philippi. But when he casts the demon out from the slave girl, you know the story. She can no longer tell people's fortunes and her handlers are not getting money anymore. And the people who own her become very angry and they lodge a complaint with the city government and they threaten to riot. And because everybody knows this, Rome keeps the peace, the Pax Romana. They keep it with the sword. And they do not want the Roman government coming down on their city because of unrest. So they seize Paul and Silas. Luke and Timothy were nowhere to be found at this, uh, at this point. They seize Paul and Silas and they beat them with rods with no trial. And I don't want to go into all that is involved in being beaten with rods, but let me promise you that it is not an experience you would ever want to repeat and it would leave you bleeding and in excruciating pain. And Paul and Silas are sitting in the stocks in the inner part of this dark and filthy prison at night, their bodies racked with pain. And Paul could have been tempted to complain. He could have said under his breath, come over to Macedonia and help us. <laughs> you know? And Silas maybe have looked over like, yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me on this journey. But as you know, Paul and Silas didn't complain. At midnight, Acts says, they sang hymns to God. And God joined in on the base part and the whole prison started shaking and they were loosed from their bonds and everyone was set free. Paul remembered that night every morning he woke up after that probably for weeks because his body was so sore from that beating. So when he went next to Thessalonica and preached the gospel there and the Jews became angry they complained to the government. They knew that if the government thought Paul was causing civil unrest, they would beat him or get him out of there. So they complained to the government. And Paul didn't wait around this time to find out what would happen. His friends got him out of Thessalonica because he may not have been able to survive another beating with rods so soon. So he went to preach in a little city off the beaten path, a city called Berea. But the Jews from Thessalonica found him in Berea and they told the people in that synagogue, watch out for this guy. And they raised the, they, they raised the, the alarm again. And Paul knew that there was going to be trouble. So he left. And this time his adversaries basically chased him south in, into the Grecian mainland all the way closer and closer to Corinth. Now, I want you to think right now, is some of you are thinking, you know, what's wrong with Paul here? He's, he's the apostle. I mean, can't he stay in the city and preach the gospel and trust God no matter what, even if he's beaten again? Can't he, can he have that, that trust in the Lord? Well, is that what you and I would have done? Stay there to be beaten again? Do you think Paul is some superhero of the Christian faith, impervious to scoffing 
And pain, is he like the Rocky Balboa of evangelicalism, you know, who keeps coming at you? Some of you got that. He keeps coming at you no matter what you do to him? No. Paul is like you and I are. He flinches when you're about to hit him. He gets discouraged. He feels pain. He wonders what's going to happen to him. He struggles to trust the Lord. So Paul sends Timothy and Silas um, secretly back to Macedonia to check out the churches and find out what's going on. And he goes on to Athens. And after he preaches on the Areopagus, there are so many who mock the preaching of Jesus rising from the dead. But there are others who actually believe the gospel and are saved. But Paul does not stick around to plant a church there. It's really curious. I think about this a lot when I'm reading through, through Acts. Why doesn't Paul stay there and plant a church? And, and maybe because Paul has gotten used to the fact that he can only preach the gospel for so long. And as soon as the trouble starts, he's going to have to get out of town if he can't take another beating. So if we can go to the next slide, he comes into Corinth. And what happens? Let's review. Things are going really well. He connects with new friends in the ministry. He's able to teach the gospel in the synagogue. Every Sabbath day, reason the scriptures and persuade his audience. Next slide, please. And when Silas and Timothy caught up with him again, verse 5 says, Paul is able to go full-time preaching that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. But then, but then, as usual, trouble starts. The Jews ultimately reject Paul's gospel. Verse 5 says, they opposed and reviled him. These words mean that they set themselves uh, precisely against Paul, definitely against him. And they publicly denounced his message, likely by telling all of the Jewish members of the synagogue, don't listen to this guy. You'll be excommunicated from the synagogue if you do. And if you get excommunicated as a Jew from synagogue life, that is a very low mark on you. You can never come back in and you are looked down on by the rest of the Jewish community. So Paul threw gasoline on the fire. He said, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And that was fighting words to the Jews. Paul actually even went further and kind of rubbed it in their faces because he left living with Priscilla and Aquila. And he moved in with a Gentile. You're not even supposed to go into the house of a Gentile if you're a Jew. He moved in with a Gentile who lived next door to the Jewish synagogue. And here Paul is set up living with a Gentile in full view of the synagogue where he continues to preach and teach. I imagine this, this could have happened. He could have been in the courtyard of this house. He could have been outside the gate just teaching and preaching the gospel. And the people would come in to worship in the synagogue. They'd have to pass the apostle Paul preaching the gospel every single time. And what happens? The leader of the synagogue, Crispus, with his whole family, comes to faith in Jesus Christ. You can't make this stuff up. This is by the grace of God. And verse 8 here says that he's the very ruler of the synagogue. And so he must have been rejected by the rest because he's the main guy. If anybody should have stood his ground, it would have been Crispus. So many people are believing and the church is growing. You would think, wow, this is great. Let's stay here and keep ministering. But here's what I think. I think at the end of verse 8, Paul begins to mentally pack his bags. He knows that the Jews of the synagogue are not going to take this lying down. 
And it's only a matter of time before they start a riot. They bring up his name to the, to the leadership in Corinth. And Paul is probably thinking that now his ministry is coming to an end. There's a church started. People are, are, are worshiping the Lord. The gospel is being spread. Let's go on to someplace else. Because, because it is precisely at this moment in the narrative where the story takes a remarkable turn. The Lord does something for Paul on this occasion to bolster his confidence and keep him ministering. Paul, who's probably still aching from the last beating, to bolster his confidence and keep him ministering in this city so that a great harvest of souls could be reaped for the Lord. If we can go to verse 9 on the screen, it says that the Lord came to Paul and said in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he may be talking about those who have not yet come to Christ, but God knew they're going to come to Christ. I have many people in the city who are my people. He kept Paul there. And he gave him that extra, he didn't have to do this, but he gave him that extra confidence through this vision to stay put by promising his presence. And the result is Paul stayed a year and six months in his missionary journeys. This is the longest place that we know he stayed at this point. Later, he stays in Ephesus for three years. So he beats that. He doubles that later. But in this, so far, this is the longest he's stayed in any city. He stays there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The Lord wanted Paul to stay his course, to continue preaching the gospel. And did you catch everything that the Lord says to Paul here? He says, do not be afraid. You mean Paul was afraid? Apparently, he could have fear. He says, go on speaking and do not be silent. Notice the Lord says it twice here. Once in the positive, keep on speaking. And once in the negative, do not be silent. The word silent here is the same verb that Jesus uses when he calms the storm in Mark 4.39, when Jesus says, peace or hush, be still. So to the storm, Jesus says, hush, ziopa. But to his servant, he says, speak, lale. Why would Jesus have to say to Paul, speak, did it ever occur to you that Paul was sometimes afraid to open his mouth? I mean, he, I would be. I mean, I'd start, you know, my body would start cringing in the right circumstance because you know what's coming. You know what the Apostle Paul asked the churches to pray for, right? When he's writing to the Ephesians, he says, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then he says it again, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Does that surprise you? That Paul has to ask his church members to pray for him for boldness to open his mouth? Have you ever been afraid to open your mouth? Paul was. But what does the Lord say to him? He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for... I am with you, Paul. Nothing's going to happen to you here. The Lord comforted and encouraged Paul by promising his divine presence. I am with you. If we can advance the slide here, I want to unpack the heart of this wonderful promise for just a few minutes. The Lord says, do not be afraid. Keep your ministry going. 
Keep your mouth open, for I am with you. First of all, let's look at this word for. It's emphatic in the Greek text. You see the word for all the time. In fact, I've pointed out the word for. It means because, and it's, it's the basis for something. But sometimes there's a heftier word in the text that really calls attention to the basis of something or the reason for something. And that's the word you happen to have here. In other words, the Lord wants Paul to find his footing in his ministry to rest secure, to move forward with confidence for the very reason that the Lord is with him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is exactly how we must think about ministry, especially when things are not working out exactly as we hoped. When there are twists and turns in the journey or disappointments or pressures or pain or surprises to deal with, we can keep moving forward as long as we know the Lord is right here with us as we are assured of his presence. Let's look at the next couple of words, I am. There's something else here in the heart of the promise when we consider these words. Notice that Jesus says, I am with you. Again, the Greek New Testament here, this is a verb that means I am. It's pronounced amy. It means I am all by itself. If you say amy in Greek, you mean I am. But if you want to emphasize the I part of the I am, you put the pronoun with it. Ego amy. I myself am. I am. This is what Jesus says to Paul. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to shirk from ministry or be discouraged because I myself am the one who is with you. And any of Paul's missionary co-workers would have said to Paul, you know, we support you. We're there for you. We've got your back, Paul. And they were wonderful to him. They were supportive of him. In fact, in 2 Timothy, Paul is in a really low spot where a lot of the people who had been with him have left him. And he, you, can, you can tell in chapter 1 especially that he's very discouraged about that. He needs that support from others in the body. But as wonderful as that was, the Lord knows that we need a better assurance than that, a fuller assurance. So the Lord promises his own presence, that he would be with Paul, that he would be by his side, guarding, keeping, guiding. The Lord refers to himself with the words, I am, ego eimi, I am, is the one who is with you. Then he pairs these words together with the phrase, with you. Ego emi metasu. I am with you. Do you realize that this is the same promise Jesus gives to his disciples? And by extension, I would say any of us who share the gospel. He, he gives this, this uh, promise to his disciples when he meets with them in Galilee after his resurrection, right? Matthew 28. When he commissions them to preach the gospel and then he tells them, behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age, as you have this emphatic uh, timetable, not only am I with you, I am with you always. It will never stop. I am with you even to the end of the age. doesn't matter when you're born in this age. We have the assurance of the Lord's presence. He is with you right now and always will be. Sometimes you are tempted to think that he's far away because we wonder why everything is coming apart sometimes. God, I'm, in, I'm serving you. What, why are you letting this happen? 
I, I could have done more ministry if I had had that money. <laughs> you know, or if I hadn't had this problem to deal with, I, I could have got more done for you. We argue with God because we wonder why everything is coming apart and we're trying to serve the Lord. And we don't feel emotionally close to the Lord at a given time, maybe. Or because other people are against us and dislike us and we get to thinking the Lord must feel the same way. Why is he letting me go through this? Or we wallow in self-pity and think no one cares, no one knows, not even the Lord is paying attention, we'll tell ourselves. Those are lies we should never believe because the Lord never leaves his servants. He never leaves his children. He's always been with you his child whom he loves. And he says on this basis, because I, the I am, am with you. You can keep going. You can keep serving. You can keep loving. You can keep obeying. You can keep encouraging others. You can keep trusting. You can keep hoping because I am with you. You know, the author of Hebrews, right toward the end of his letter, after making this incredible argument about the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, who ever lives to make intercession for us, after talking about Jesus being at the Father's throne, representing us, not being ashamed to call us his brother or his sister, who ran the race before us, who gives us the example that we can follow and find our hope in, and on and on we could go. All these things that the writer of Hebrews packs into that incredible letter. After all of that, the writer emphasizes this point here as one of the last things he writes in the letter, he says, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, notice the promise gives us confidence. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What command you to me? Here is how emphatic this promise is. I will never leave you. It reads this way in the original language. It's, it's, it's a grammatical construction that expresses one of the strongest negations in the Greek language. It combines two forms of the word no or not, plus a verb of possibility. And if you're wondering what all that means, it comes off something like this. Literally, you could read this. I will not, not possibly leave you. I will not, not possibly forsake you. It will not happen. It's not even in the realm of possibility. And this assurance of the Lord's divine presence is exactly what Paul needs right now. In fact, you can set the apostle's situation alongside other well-known figures in the Old Testament and the New Testament and find a lot of similarities. In fact, I'm thinking of one in particular. If we can go to Exodus chapter 3, I'm talking about Moses here who stood at the burning bush and answered God with this shaking voice. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? What does God say to him? But I will be with you. And then the text continues in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, there's a lot we could say about this divine name, I am. 
but the essence of this name that God gives, the name by which he desires to be known among his people. Notice, it's the name by which he desires to be known among his people. Is the declaration of his faithful presence. That's the essence of this name. I am carries with it the idea, I am here. I am with you. I exist for you. When asked about his name, his nature, and so forth, God could have called attention to any number of things. And later on, remember, he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes by and God, Moses sees uh, the glories of God. God could have responded in all kinds of ways if, if, if Moses would have said, uh, you know, what, 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 am I, what are they supposed to call you? What, what if they say, who sent you? He could have talked about his power. God could have talked about his holiness. He could have called attention to his wisdom, his justice, so many wonderful attributes. But first and foremost, this is striking. God wanted his people to know that he is here, that he is the I am. All of his wonderful attributes, his power, his wisdom, his majesty, his holiness, they are continually present and available to God's people because God himself is continually present and available to his people. Do you go through a normal day continually reckoning the fact that as a believer in Christ, the Lord is present with you, that he is? Or is it possible to go throughout your day or week and process all that you do and only have it come to mind on occasion that the Lord is there? Think about all that you know about the Lord Jesus. Think about his compassion. Think about his strength, his wisdom, all that he is to us right now. Because he is here. He is with us. Now, notice, if it is the I am in this text who has sent Moses to his people, then it is the same I am who has just said to Moses, I will be with you. When we go in the name of the Lord, we are going with the strength and the authority and the presence of the I am. Can you even believe then that after all of this, Moses still has objections? In fact, we can go to chapter 4 in verse 10 as an example. After several more objections, uh, Moses uh, said to the Lord in, in, in verse 10 here, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. I didn't pass freshman speech. Uh, I, I, did, I, was, I didn't take a minor. I, was, I, didn't, I didn't train in this area. I'm not eloquent either in the past or since, your servant is, since, since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Lord, I can't open my mouth. I can't use my mouth. Then the Lord said to Moses, who's made man's mouth? Who makes the mute or the deaf or the seeing or the blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses, it's really simple. Just go and open your mouth. I am with you. I'm with your mouth. I'm with anything you put forward to serve me. If it is in my will, I am with that. And that's all that matters. And Moses was able to stand before Pharaoh because the I am was with him. We don't have time to talk about this, and it's not in my notes or anything, but I, I preached through Exodus once, and it's, it was really interesting to see Aaron standing there talking to Pharaoh at the beginning of their confrontations. 
But as you keep reading in Exodus, eventually Moses is participating, and by the end, Moses has taken charge. He has found his mouth. In other words, he, this, this meeting with the Lord, you would imagine it would have changed everything for him, but Moses still was not convinced, and he still took a little time, like you and I do. Sometimes we know we ought to serve the Lord. We, ought, we know we ought to take this step forward. We, we, we're, we're scared to sometimes, or it's awkward for us and, and so forth. And God is giving us time and grace to grow into what he wants us to do. Not even Moses was off running at the beginning, but he went forward. He trusted, and eventually God brought that out of him. And Moses was able to stand before Pharaoh because the I am was with him. You see, Lack of confidence was not an excuse that made sense to God when he called Moses to follow him. God promises Moses his abiding presence and says that is enough for him to overcome any inadequacy, any worry, any doubt, any discouragement, any threat. So why the excuses from Moses? Because he had not yet learned to trust in the abiding presence of God. I wonder if we have learned that yet, to trust in the abiding presence of God. Because these excuses sound very familiar to us. We ourselves still struggle to come to an understanding of the ever-present reality of the Lord. Moses stood before Pharaoh. Paul stood before Roman governors and went to Caesar's court of justice in Rome. Why? Because Moses and Paul were both mighty men of valor who could stand up to any odds because of their genius or personal character or dedication. No, that's not it at all. Because if we look closely at their lives, they are human beings just like we are who would get a dry mouth and weak knees What drove them forward was the growing conviction that the Lord is always with them. And by God's grace, so it shall be with you and me. If we operate by the same conviction of the Lord's presence, if we find our hope and our comfort and our zeal in the reality that he is here, truly we have nothing to fear. So go serve the Lord. Don't stop living for him. Don't ever question his commitment to you or his promises because he is the I am who will never, never leave you even unto the end of the age. And we can bank on that and we can go forward and live for the Lord as he has called us to because of who he is in us. Praise God for what he has given us in his presence. Father, thank you.